0: Welcome Dr. Aaron Weiner to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming in, just sharing about who you are, what you do. And hopefully we can help some other people who are in our field. Uh, I guess just to start off, man, give your intro and a little bit of a spiel on what you do.
1: Yeah, well, th- thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. So I, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I'm an addiction psychologist, and I've got one foot in the treatment side of things where I've got my own private practice, and then I've got another foot in the education side of things where I do a lot of talks, both for professionals, for students, for schools. My, my passion, if I were going to sum it up, is about connecting people to the information they need to make the most informed choices about mental health or about addiction because what I found is there's a lot that's published in clinical journal articles and medical journals on the data side that doesn't quite make it into the hands of parents into the hands of people who are struggling uh, or even say into legislation where we're deciding where to put really critical tax dollars. What's the highest uh, way to leverage that? What's the best way to leverage that? So I try to be that bridge and connect people to the information they need.
0: That's extremely important. And how, if you don't mind me asking, like how did you get into that passion and what you're doing right now? So I I started
1: just thinking I would just stay very much in the treatment lane. I, I was training actually in VA hospitals for a number of years and thinking I was going to end up as a VA psychologist, which is actually a great place to work as a psychologist. You're very appreciated. You're doing incredibly important work, Uh, but ended up not going that route because when I finished my... Postdoctoral residency, there just wasn't really, or fellowship, rather, there wasn't a place in the V8 system to go, and I ended up on a route that eventually brought me into hospital administration, uh, over a psychiatric hospital in the Chicago area, which is where I'm based. And from that vantage point, I, I just started seeing that there were a lot of these gaps, and that if you look further upstream, like, well, so where where are these problems coming from? How in healthcare can we be more proactive? rather than just reactive. I still, I've still i still always been very passionate about helping people who are struggling, but I also started to realize, wait a second, like if we can stop someone from falling into the river, then we don't have to fish them out. And so that's really where a lot of my passion for policy, passion for education comes from and, and how I got into the field.
0: That's really great and beneficial for, yeah, for people in our field to have someone like you who really understands the data And the other side of it where, you know, people are in long term recovery or treatment facilities and then also being on the side of, hey, let's help people before they need to get here. Um, They're yeah, they're both so important and you have experience in both, which is really, really cool.
1: I remember back early in my training, I, I had this almost like training whiplash where i started i actually spent the whole time in the alcohol and other drug office at the university uh, university of illinois at urbana champaign working with college kids who had some sort of substance related consequence but then i went to the va hospital in danville illinois where i was working in an intensive outpatient and then also i guess actually it was a residential treatment center where you had these really really tough on their luck, folks who were just very far advanced down the addiction spectrum. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking like, wow, there's a lot of these kids who I'm seeing at school who don't realize you don't just end up 45 and in this hole. There's a progression. There's a path you walk down that gets you there. And if they could see like, oh, wow, like this is where this behavior is going to take me. Maybe they'd have second thoughts.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really where we want to dive in as you talked about that progression and our podcast is, is mostly about prevention. And so my question for you is, what do you, what do you think that students are facing today um, that's, you know, challenging or, or things that they're going through that you're seeing, you know, on a daily basis or you're studying? Um, kind of talk to us about that.
1: Yeah. Well, so students right now are facing a really tough intersection of a really heavy weight of stress and mental health concerns combined with industries that are there to prey on the fact that they're feeling vulnerable and looking for outlets. And I think what a lot of people don't recognize is that the stress system in the body is very similar to any other system where you've got Uh, you've got inputs, but then you also have to have outputs. You can't just keep stuffing and stuffing and stuffing things inside of yourself. And I think intuitively we understand that when it comes to say like like, uh, food, when it comes to liquid, but it also works that way in terms of stress and mental health burden. And so what's happening is as we're seeing stress Increase whether or not it has to do with academic stress and like the like needing to go to college or the AP classes or you know, expectations or the stress of uh, all, all the other things that are going on in life for kids right now. Maybe for some of them more recently, things like school shootings or things related to COVID and sickness or whatever it is. They've got all these pressures. How are they going to deal with it? That's where we're seeing companies come in in terms of vaping in terms of the marijuana and cannabis industry even things like microtransactions in mobile games where we see kids basically fall into gambling behaviors through that social media and you know the social comparison on instagram and you know what we see on snap there's there's so many places where kids can fall in where we have these for-profit enterprises trying to kind of like swoop in and say oh you so you're stressed so you have a need Here's a solution, but it, it's not really a healthy solution.
0: Yeah, so just so to m- make sure I understand what you said is that since students are facing right pressures, they have anxiety and they're coping with real challenges in life. and these companies see that as an opportunity to market their products as a solution. And so my next question is why, for example, you mentioned social media and some of the gaming industry, gambling, um, these, you know, vaping cannabis products, like why is that not a good solution for them?
1: Well, they've got, they've got downstream negative implications. And I think what, when we talk about maladaptive coping behaviors, which is what a lot of these things are like they're, they're ways of feeling better in the moment, but as time goes on and you repeat it over and over and over again, there's a lot of really negative implications. Um, that's, that's, the the pivot, right? The the real question is how do we equip kids with actual coping skills that work for them now and don't weigh them down later and turn into a chain around their neck later in life?
0: Yeah, that's extremely relatable to me being, you know, a presenter in schools is what you just explained is kind of the catchphrase or the the theme of it, which is in life, you can develop skill sets or you can take shortcuts, and so drugs or social media or that escape is one of those shortcuts, and it doesn't fix your problem. It just helps you escape from it. And versus what you're talking about is how can we equip young people to develop the right skill sets so they can continue to cope throughout their life in healthy ways that doesn't have negative consequences. So if students are, are using these shortcuts, you know, they're They're not developing the skills to cope with life's challenges, but instead they're going to an escape. Uh, What is it doing to their brains?
1: Yeah, so, so the brain actually does become more sensitized to those shortcuts the more you use them. So for example, in the case of nicotine and THC in particular, we've seen that if you use those when you're an adolescent and your brain is still forming, and that's actually a critical part to this, your brain isn't really done growing in certain places and pruning in others until you're about 25 years old. And so anytime you're putting a chemical into your brain that affects it before then you are potentially altering how it grows. But when we put those chemicals in there in particular, we've seen that then when you later put it in front of a stimulus like a different drug, like cocaine or like opioids or something like that, we find that the brain actually lights up differently and you're more susceptible to addiction to other drugs. It's something that we call priming. But even outside of a biological side of things where you've you've got that priming effect, what you start to do is build this psychological pathway of thinking like, oh, I I can't feel uncomfortable right now. I, I, It's not okay for me to feel this way. It needs to stop as quickly as possible. This is not an okay state to be in. And you start to to lose tolerance or not develop tolerance for discomfort, which is just a really important part of being able to make it through life without getting really frantic or frenzied when you're put under pressure.
0: Wow. So you actually become less resilient to life's challenges because of the escape that you're using or you know, the drugs or um, anything that you would choose because your body learns to, to take that escape every time.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I would I would say that I, I I don't think that's going too too far out on a limb to say that the more you practice something or practice a response to something, the stronger ingrained that becomes, which, which doesn't mean that, you know, like if you were, say, to feel really stressed and use a shortcut that all of a sudden you've just like take your resiliency and now you're in a hole or something like that. Like so many things in life it has to do with trends but if your main if your response say to a situation that feels challenging or threatening or where you think you might fail and so that that feels really threatening is to say run away or to shy away from it or to self-sabotage so that you can be like oh well it wasn't because i'm not smart enough that i didn't do all well in that test it's because i stayed up all night playing fortnite Or whatever you know like that you do that enough times and yeah like that starts to become what feels comfortable and the idea of being more courageous or using a skill uh, or even just experiencing it and having like that that pressure or discomfort be okay that that stops being that, that starts to atrophy
0: okay so what do you think that students and i know that you do work with students and parents and professionals you know speaking engagements courses trainings you even have a data package that people can basically get all the stuff that you nerd out about, right? Which is amazing. We need this. <laughs> and you deliver it in a package to schools and different organizations who can use it. Um, and so what are some of those things in there? Or even just one thing, just one thing that you think, hey, if we can help students realize this, then we can potentially help them.
1: Yeah, well, I think so. Gosh, it's hard to pick just one. I, I think the, the most important thing that you can sell students on, though, is that these skills that you're talking about, like skill sets rather than shortcuts, that the skill sets actually work. And I know one one of the tactics that I like to use most when I work with people on coping skills, I like to start with a deeper diaphragmatic breathing where you breathe in through your nose and it's almost like inflating a balloon behind your belly button like true deep breathing i think sometimes when people deep breathe they they don't do it right and so they don't really understand how it should feel but if you if you do diaphragmatic or deep breathing particularly if you combine it with some mindfulness but if you do that for even like three to five minutes most people tend to find like wow like, I feel more relaxed in my body. Like, I actually do feel less tense now than I did just five minutes ago. And it's almost like proof of concept. Like, okay, like, I can understand how, like, this is not the same thing, obviously, as, like, someone getting drunk. But I could see how this could be useful. I can see how this could make life manageable. And I also can understand how doing these other things has a lot of blowback, particularly, again, if you're a kid and drinking, say, could get you in a lot of trouble, not to mention impact your brain or cause problems as, as life goes on. You start thinking, OK, like I see, like it's it's not theoretical. I'm experiencing it. And so I, I think if I had to pick just one, it would be how how can we really try to create these deliverables where a young person says, OK, like I get it. You know, like I see it. I feel it right now, because I think particularly for young people, it's important to lead strong because the ability to to uh, delay, dis- their ability to see reward in the future and wait for it is actually less than an adult. That's actually one of the last parts of our brain to develop is the part with executive functioning, which allows for better, uh, that, to, to reduce that reward discount issue where like something in the future doesn't matter as much to you as something
0: right now. Okay. Yeah. That prefrontal cortex, is that the smart name for it? wow and you know why that makes so much sense to me is that like when you were explaining just that simple exercise is that you're creating an experience for someone like it's one thing to tell a student hey you can develop skills to cope with these challenges and they think well what do you know you don't know what I'm facing you don't know like what coping skills I have or I don't have any skills they might even think um And all these things might be going on through their minds, but if you can give them an experience and it takes less than five minutes and you can make them feel different, then your words now are more trustworthy. They've experienced it themselves. They don't have to go out on a limb to say, wow, Dr. Weiner actually knows what he's talking about. They're like, no, he, he told me something. I tested it out. Kids love testing us. And now it's proven it correctly. And now I can actually go on a limb, and when he tells me that it's brave to ask for help, I can go and develop these other coping skills, you know, with with exercise or hobbies or being with friends, and it's going to give me an outcome instead of using a drug um, or jumping onto social media or whatever it might be for them. Um, that it gives your it gives your word more weight because they've experienced it with you. So I think that's fantastic.
1: Yeah. You know, I like to, so I like to talk about the brain, particularly when it comes to stress, but I think even in greater, uh, like if we broaden out a little bit, I like to use the image of a dog driving a car. And I like, I have a picture I like to show actually during presentations, but like, if you can imagine you've got like the super advanced car, like a Tesla or something, and then you've got this dog behind the wheel. That's our brain because we have this really advanced prefrontal cortex, like you mentioned, that allows for this this really intense, like abstract thought planning, task switching, all this really interesting stuff, all this really powerful stuff. But what's even stronger is our emotion brain, our feeling brain, and that's like the dog. That's, that's it, it doesn't, and I th- say it's a dog because it doesn't speak English. It doesn't rationalize. It doesn't logic its way through things. It feels, and that's why if you've ever been like really angry about something or you've been anxious about something, someone just like trying to reason you out of it, to talk you out of it, it usually doesn't work. It's like a pit in your stomach, right? Or a tension in your chest or a feeling of heat. It's, it's not a rational thought, it's a feeling. And the language of our primal brain, the language of our limbic system—that's that's that dog behind the car side, the one that, that feels rather than thinks—it speaks in experiences, just like dogs do. Like when you're teaching a dog to learn how to like to sit, it learns to sit not because you say "sit," but because when you utter those, you know, those phonemes, you get, and it sits. You give it a treat. And it's like okay when i hear the word sit i sit i get a treat i get rewarded that's what i'm supposed to do that treat is an experience and that's the language that that part of our mind speaks so if you can have someone experience relaxation if you can have them experience a change that cuts so much deeper on to that side of our reasoning than any amount of logic or any argument you could make ever will
0: wow that's fascinating and it, like, even the fact that it's becoming more memorable because it's emotional and hitting that part of the brain.
1: Wow. yeah, That's cool. Yeah, you and I, well, so, so like you and I are both professional speakers. And one of the, the first rules of effective speaking is you have to evoke an emotion in your audience, right? Like if you're, why are you memorable? Because you make someone feel something. The same thing goes for music. The same thing goes for movies. That's because that cuts so deep into our memory when you think about why do people like want to do something though, like if say someone's in a position of stress, are they going to want to take some deep breaths? Are they going to want to go for a run? Are they going to want to listen to music or are they going to want to get drunk? How they make that determination has a lot to do with their experiences around those different things. And that's part of why when someone gets into a bad habit, why it sticks around because their brain thinks okay, what's gonna solve this problem the quickest? How can I get out of discomfort quickly? And if they've started to make this association of, oh, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm just gonna go play Minecraft for four hours. That's how I feel better. And anytime my mom or dad says, hey, it's time to go do your homework, it's gonna feel so threatening that I'm gonna yell at them until they leave the room and just don't wanna talk to me anymore. And then I'll come down again. That feels really rewarding sometimes even if you're getting punishment from your parents and that's why you continue the behaviors. So anyway, I could talk about this for a long time, but it's, it's all about speaking and experiences when you're trying to get through to the emotion brain, words are for the logic brain. Both are important, but you got to speak the right language at the right time.
0: That's extremely helpful. Uh, so let's jump to any, you know, professionals listening here who the podcast is for is, um, this might be a tough question too, but what's what's one thing that maybe they could know around this topic that can help them do their jobs better, to help students better, Um, you know, take your pick, but something that they can implement uh, or just know to be a little bit better equipped.
1: Yeah. Well, so I'm going to steal something then from Simon Sinek and say, it's important to know their why. It's important to know the kids' why, particularly when it comes to mental health, and then also definitely when it comes to substance use. What I've found is that whenever you're trying to get someone to walk away from one behavior and towards another, although you do have to give them that better offer, right? Like, here's where I want you to go, not just don't do this. It's also really important to know why they're doing it in the first place. Is it social acceptance? Is it stress? Is it depression? Is it you know, there's a lot, is it because they're dealing with abuse at home sometimes, you know, like there's, or in their community, are they living in a dangerous neighborhood? There's a lot of reasons why kids are looking for those quick fixes, those shortcuts, those escapes. And if you know why, then you can, uh, then you can tailor the message. And particularly if you're working with one-on-one with people, as I do, it's really important to understand their particular why so that you can help really make the message work for them and get them to a different place. So know their why I'd say that that's the core of everything.
0: Okay, great. And then I want to end with this because I know that talking about prevention and sometimes highlighting this can seem like we're, you know, we have an uphill battle, which makes sense. There's a lot of money and time being poured into getting students into these things that aren't great for them. So it's going to take an equal amount of time and effort and money to, you know, keep them safe from it. So my question for you is like, what gives you hope doing this work? Cause it can be heavy sometimes. So yeah. What keeps you hopeful in this arena that maybe things can change?
1: Mm, really good question. Well, so I, I think there's a couple that give me a lot of hope. The first is when you look at what happened with cigarettes in this country, And how in the late 90s, smoking stopped being cool. And that didn't happen by accident. There was a lot of work. I mean, the Surgeon General's advisory about cancer came out in the 80s, you know, so it took about 15 years. But it actually, it it happened where instead of smoking being like cool and edgy and like the thing that to do to be popular, it became gross. And it became something that the kids no longer wanted to do, that stopped being idolized, that stopped being depicted in the same sorts of ways in media. And we saw a shift. And the smoking rate generally in the country has gone down every single year since then. Um, same thing for, for students. I think only in the past year or two it's leveled off. and. We've got vaping to thank for that, unfortunately, but that's something where, when I think about how, do, how does the future look in terms of some of those areas where we are seeing these negative coping increases, like in vaping, like in marijuana and things like that. I'm hopeful that we can we can make that curve shorter this time and that we, we, we've done it before. We can learn from our successes and do it again. What also gives me a lot of hope is I see like right now, for example, the Surgeon General of the United States out there beating a super loud drum about youth mental health. I see articles about youth mental health on national media. I hear people talking about the fact that this is a huge issue, and and it really is. This is the sort of thing where if we pay attention to it now, it will help tremendously. And if we don't, we are going to be feeling the weight of this quite literally for decades to come, because the you know the people obviously who are you know 8 through 18 now are going to be 28 through 38 are going to be 38 through 48 are going to be raising their own kids and if these are issues that grow and get worse over time versus that we pay attention to now um there's 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 a huge delta in you know difference in in how how that's going to go so i'm seeing a lot of attention being given in the right places and i've seen us be successful in the past so when i think about optimism that's where my mind goes
0: that gives me hope too and it's, it's great to hear that. Yeah. We're kind of, we've done this before with one platform. So we have a baseline to go off of, we saw some results and that there's people right now, like many of us probably listening to this too, who are willing to put in the work and the time and effort to, you know, to, to fight this and to make something good come from it. Um, and hopefully some stronger, stronger stories, um, you know kids growing up to be really great community members because of their experience and i know with my intern program i've seen students who've you know they started vaping in school and now they just don't put up with it with their friends because they had that powerful experience and just the stuff that they're brave enough to do it, it gives me hope that like you said like we've got people who are seeing it the data is going to come out and catch up too and Uh, we'll be able to make a difference. So thank you for sharing that. Is there, uh, as we wrap up, please share anything else that you think we didn't get to talk about that you want to touch on. And then I'd love for you to just share, what are you um, working on or what are ways people can stay in touch with you or even work with you? um, And just, yeah, kind of end on that, how we can stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, I guess, so in terms of wrapping things up and ending, I'd say if, if, if you've taken the time to listen to this podcast and get to this point, you are probably very solidly in the camp of someone who wants to make a difference in the lives of young people. And so I just want to thank your audience for everything that they're doing.
0: Well, Dr. Weiner, this has been really, really cool. I, I loved our conversation and thank you so much for being on this show.